FMX Network production. A series of the most exciting action imaginable. Welcome to the Leanne Re-Raceables on PulpMX.com. Mathis and Weege revisit the instant classics from yesteryear, spotlighting those historic moto moments that simply never grow old. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Lee at Re-Raceables, presented by the folks at Maxis, Blenzol, and now Scott Goggles. Thanks for listening, man. This is going to be uh, the U.S. Open edition. We're going to focus on uh, the first couple of years and and the further editions and, and what went right with the race and what went wrong with the race and, and all of that. So thank you for listening. Super appreciate it. Tell your friends. Subscribe. It's a brand new show, brand new feed, all of that stuff. Look. Different people ride for different reasons, yet there's a common denominator that binds everyone who puts their body on the line for the sheer enjoyment of it, and this is what Liat offers as a brand. They make protective wear, go- helmets, goggles, riding gear, knee braces, boot, neck braces, covering riders from head to toe for both moto and mountain bike. But what Liat really stands for is a promise of things to come. They are in the business of making sure that you have the confidence and the equipment to push yourself faster, harder, and further than you thought you could go. Visit them at liat.com. Thank you to those guys for uh, all the support on the show. And if you need a code to save at liat.com, email us using the contact form on pulpamex.com. I'll send you a code. You can get a little bit of a deal. You can try it out for yourself. And thanks to Liat, man. And also, of course, Maxis Blenzol and Scott USA, which we'll get to in a little minute. But for now, let's talk about the U.S. Open and break it all down. Uh, I did a story on RacerX Digital Magazine. It is free. Yes, free to read. Just uh, sign up, uh, enter, get, make an account, or uh, enter your account details, and you can read the entire thing there. It's, it's also in the latest issue of RacerX Magazine, the, the first little part of it. So a couple of ways to read it, a couple of ways to talk about it as well. Uh, let me bring in my co-host, my usual co-host. Talking about free, then you got to talk about this man. It's Jason Wygan. What's up, man? Yeah, that's right. It's just like a hybrid right here, Steve, where normally all the magazine stories, you have to actually be a paying subscriber to access them on the website. But this one, just log in. And I think you could just do that with social, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then you can read it. Yeah. So you do have to log in, but you don't have to pay. Exactly. So. Fantastic. So I, uh, I'm i good buddies, as are you, with Eric Pernard, the founder of this race. Everybody is. Yeah, everybody is. And so I've talked to him about it over the years a bunch of times, and I was like, man, this makes this would be an interesting story, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do we do this? Uh, and then uh, it ended up working out pretty well um, with the uh, uh, able to do uh, oral form, oral history, long form. I think that's probably uh, the best way to capture this week. Yeah, you've had a lot of success. Uh, let's throw out some of the other long forms you've done. So off-season, if people are looking to kill some time, especially on a weekend where we don't have races, there's some phenomenal ones. I think Moto Triple X, was that actually your first? That was the very first one, the history of the Moto Triple X team, yeah. Yes. And then uh, you and I worked a little bit together on what we called Fight Club, which was the 2001-125 uh, National Championship with uh, Langston, Brown, and Pastrana. And then you've had several others, the No Fear History, and I think the best one you did was Jeremy McGrath's 14 wins or attempt to win 14 in a row, <laughs> uh, 14 and one. Really? Uh, you think that was, that was the best one you think? Yeah. Yeah. I really dug that. I really dug that. Yep. 
What else did you got? Uh, I did the um, history. You got the history of No Fear, the Jeremy McGrath 14 and 1. I did the history of 1110 mods. That one. Oh, little that controversy. One little controversy. That trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit tougher. Um, <sighs> that was a little bit my bad because, yes, your plan was for it to actually just be a story about Phil and Troll Train and well, their humble beginnings. Well, and Nate and Billy Hardo. The, the idea was at that time. These guys had uh, all become factory riders. And I was like, look where they came from. Yeah, factory riders, factory mechanics. Look where they came from. Yep, yeah. Yep. But the story kind of just became this oh, this privateer team they're on. It was such a disaster that really the majority of the story was about the team. That was like the focus. And then uh, yeah. Chad Sander, who so, owned the team, I don't think was stoked on that. He never, <laughs> hey, I tried to put him in the story. He never responded. Okay. All right. I gave you a chance, you know? So. Okay, let uh, that be known, everybody. Uh, if you don't answer Steve, it might turn out bad for you. I mean, I didn't. I told him what I was doing. I said, "Hey, I'm writing yeah. the story. Would you like to c- comment?" Um, anyways, going on from there, uh, I did a story on Jimmy Gaddis, uh, 1993, um, his Supercross title that maybe saved Pro Circuit, maybe saved Pro Circuit race team. Um, Honda had pulled the support away from Mitch Payton after two very successful years. He, uh, he, he scrambled to get some Kawasaki support and not much of it, and he delivered a championship with the most unlikely rider. And uh, from there, a wonderful partnership was born that goes to this day. But as Mitch tells the story, like, dude, it, it was tough in 93. Like, uh, his mom, who does his books still to this day, was like, you can't afford this. Like, we can't go racing with this little support and et cetera, et cetera. But they pulled it through with a championship with Jimmy Gaddis, so that's on there. I have the um, uh, Kevin Windham broke his leg at Suzuki. He was in a bad state of the mind off the track, broke his leg. Uh, a lot of people thought Kevin Windham was done, but oh no, he came back. Um, so I chronicled his lost seasons and um, kind of his comeback to the sport and how much people loved seeing Kevin Windham come back. I did the oral history of 2-2 Motorsports. Uh, Chad oh, yeah. Reed, also written that's off right. by many, right? And you were, you, you and I were in press boxes going, so that's it. Just he's eighth now. That's that's all he can oh, yeah. do. <laughs> yep. uh, sixth place guy, Chad Reed, everybody. Yeah, yep. yep. Uh, and we all know how he fought back from that. I did uh, this one. I'm probably the most proud of maybe uh, Boy Wonder, the Eddie Hicks story. So I just grew up reading about this Eddie Hicks kid. He was the hyped kid. Maybe the first, you know what I mean? Because magazines and all that weren't as big when Wardy was coming. Um, and next thing you know, uh, Eddie Hicks was the guy, and he never made it. He had a very short pro career. Um, and I wanted to find Eddie Hicks and find out what happened. And I found him, and it was not easy to get a hold of. Eddie's not thriving these days, but he was very, very cool. And I hooked him up with passes to go to Tampa Supercross even, where he hadn't been to a pro race forever. And uh, so I did a story on Eddie Hicks. Why he missed out? Why he missed? What happened? You know. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all the stories. Kind of cool. Yeah. So a lot of good stories there, and all you need to do. I literally just tried it. You could just type in Racer X long form in a Google search, and it'll bring you to the part of the website that has it. You can find it in the features tab at the top, long form. And then one other story, which will no doubt, will no doubt become part of the Reraceables podcast family at some point. Aaron Hansel did a long form on the 2017 New Jersey Supercross just on the semis and the LCQ, which was probably the hardest we've ever laughed 
in a uh, at a Supercross race ever. I think I think you're right. Yeah, it was. And uh, yes. so yeah, check that out. Racer X long form, and then the latest is the U.S. Open. 1998, our buddy Eric Pernard started this race, and he basically wanted to bring Bercy Supercross to America, and uh, he did a damn good job. Ouija, where were you in 98 for the U.S. Open at the end of the season? It was in October. What were you doing? Yeah, so I was a non-believer. Look, there's been a ton of people that either think they can or actually do attempt to hold races. I I honestly feel, Steve, besides being a mechanic – and making your own gear line, thinking that you could have your own race and make tons of money and be super successful. That's on the podium of what outsiders think they could pull off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. No, you're right. Everyone thinks they could do an awesome job with a gear brand. We've seen many come, many go. (laughs) Uh, Everybody thinks they could probably be a mechanic. Then they probably become mechanics and realize how much that sucks. You could speak on that. And then everybody thinks they could hold a better Supercross race than the actual Supercross people. And we have seen many attempts. They usually go poorly and don't last more than a year. So when I saw this pop up on the radar, I mean, I'm just a fan at this point. You see the information in Cycle News, which I'd say in 97, 98 was still where you got your news. So they're going to have a race in Vegas. There's $100,000 on the line, but it's probably going to be a small track. Is it going to be any good? McGrath's probably just going to romp. Big deal. Big deal. That's kind of what I thought. I was a non-believer, and uh, it went on to be pretty epic. Now, people probably have forgotten now how cool this race was, how innovative it was at the time. It eventually ran its course. But in 98, and then especially like the second year, 99, I think it was pretty big breakthrough for the industry, what I've learned after the fact once I was around. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It, it, well, I remember, so I was an FMF Honda mechanic. This was my uh, second year on the circuit. Third year, sorry. And... um the purse money was what was big, right? Everyone was yep. complaining about the purse money. Nothing, nothing new there. And and the the purse money was what I remember people being like, "Holy crap!" Like a hundred thousand dollars to the winner. Like I can't believe it, right? So that was what I remember really being the biggest deal for this thing. And uh, um, and, and I mean, I don't know. I thought we all like to go to Vegas for the finals. Uh, they had started there in like ninety four. When was the first year of finals? It was on and off. Yeah, yeah. okay. They had a 94, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and so everybody liked to go to the finals. It was a fun time for the industry. It was a bit of a break, and um, there was a Supercross banquet now. Uh, started in 97. People were having a good time in Vegas. So I wasn't as pessimistic as you at all. I, I didn't think that – I thought this thing would be awesome. I thought it was going to be incredible, and um, I had to go. I had to go. Uh, so You had to go because you had mechanic work to do, or you just wanted to see it? I just wanted to see it. In in 98, I'd been fired from FMF Honda at this point. Uh, At the end of the year, I didn't have a good year with Danny Smith, and at the end of the year, I was brought in, and I was told, like, hey, man, this guy's got this mechanic, and this guy's got this mechanic, and, you know, there's not a... Not really any room for you here next year. And I said, well, I'll be a test guy. Do you, got, do you need a test guy? No. No, there's really not anything here for you, <laughs> I was basically told. So <laughs> I was done after the Nationals ended in 98 with FMF Honda. But I was living with my buddy Shane Drew uh, up in Victorville. He was working for Honda. I was sleeping on his couch. Uh, I was trying to find a job. Um, uh, I definitely wanted to keep keep going in the industry and keep being something, right? And um, I had to get to this race in the worst way because I just wanted to go see it. And so I needed, um, I had to get some passes, which I did through, I don't through Shane. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't have any money. I had no money. 
I so figured, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, so I didn't get her hotel room. I just slept in my truck the first night. And then the, sec- oh. and then the second night, I found uh, I crashed on the floor of, uh, I think, my buddy Fernet, Jason Fernet. Uh, I remember somebody like that. So, um, yeah, but I just had to go because partly to look for a job and partly to see this damn U.S. Open. What did you know about the MGM Grand Garden Arena? Like, I'm a college student in New Jersey. I, they kept building that up. Like, it's in the MGM Grand, and I'm like, so? I don't know what this is. <laughs> and we will talk to Eric Pernard, the founder of the race, later in the show, and he explains that that really was a game changer for Vegas itself. So I guess that had a cachet to it, like, oh, my God, they're going to race in this amazing yeah. new casino. Yeah, exactly. That was it, right? They're going to go in the casino. They're going to go indoors. It's an arena. Now, I don't remember – I remember thinking like it was when we got there, it was like, oh, this is really small. Like maybe I don't know what I was thinking or whatever, but I remember thinking this is pretty small. But um, yeah, it was it was really, really cool. Again, we had been there for the Supercrosses, So uh, we had gambled at the tables and drank at the bars and, you know, it was an industry get together. And this was just going to be more of that um, in which it turned out to be exactly that way. And it wasn't too serious from everybody uh, that first year or the second year even. And uh, it was really, really cool. Smoke machines and, uh, and and fog and everything else. And so there was a there was a VIP hospitality area at one end, and I tried so hard, Weech, to get in there. I tried so hard. Uh, Pete and Greg Fox ran it. It was a Fox racing industry, and I knew, uh, you know, all the cool people would be there. But uh, do you think I got a, a wristband? Hell no. Bro, you're getting denied monster parties to this day, so yeah. some traditions die hard. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I was uh, I was not able to get in there, but I remember thinking, oh, my, I, remember th- I'm, I remember standing outside the door to the hospitality on the one end and waiting to see if anybody I knew came and went where I could go, hey, man, you got a pass? Hey, man, you got a pass? <laughs> like, that's how bad it was. Yeah, so. I yeah. just can't believe you wanted to go so bad that broke and everything, you were willing yeah. to sleep in your truck yep. to see this event. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yep. I, and also, too, I want to network and try to get, you know, try to get a job, right? Uh, I, needed a, I needed a gig. So a little, bit of, a little bit of all of that made me drive up to Vegas. I had an S10. I drove a Chevy S10 at this point. And, uh, yeah, was not, uh, not great sleeping in the back. Uh, this is a regular cab pickup? Uh, it had the small half cab, extra cab. And you managed to sleep in it? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Just recline the seat? Uh, yep. Yep. I tried wow. to lay my gear bag. I remember I tried to lay my... The, the seats were the side ones that flipped down, right? Yeah. And I tried yeah. to lay a gear bag in the middle and then lay... That didn't work. <laughs> yeah. So flip the seat back. Uh, but, so here's the thing yeah. about this event. The, the basic genesis is... We had all read, you know, in motocross action as kids growing up, right? Like the opening ceremonies and the show at Bercy in France is like nothing you've ever seen in the United States. And suddenly, I guess the idea is we're going to have an event like that in America. Now, that uh, Bercy had gone on, I think, 14 years. I think it started in 1984. Yeah. So it had been around a good dozen mm-hmm. years before this event is even on the radar. So you've got to imagine that all the people had gone to Bercy and had seen Bercy, someone else had thought, what if we had a race like that in the United States? Yeah. But no one else did it. No one else pulled it off. So that brings us to Eric Bernard, who's the man that invented this. Now, Eric was already working with the Bercy event. He's kind of like the liaison. He's a Frenchman who lives in the U.S., so he's kind of like the liaison between the French promoters and the American riders to get them there. And Eric is loved and respected in the industry these days as kind of the guy when it comes to one-off races. But it is hard to overstate how underqualified he was to be a race promoter at this level at this time. First, he's like 30 years old. Yeah. 
And he's running a bike dealership. Yeah, he like, has a yes, Yamaha dealership. He had dealership. his hands at Bercy a bit, but this is crazy that he did this. I think more than anything, he was the guy that was living in America that the Bercy guys knew, and it would be like, "Hey, Eric, can you go talk to this guy? Like, just we need to put a face in front of this rider to go get him. You know, so yeah. you're going to be our rep, right? And that's yep. what he did. Uh, but yeah, he owned a Yamaha dealership here in Las Vegas, and that was it. He sold that thing. He had the money to uh, in his pocket, and decided he wanted to be a race promoter, and he knew that the MGM Grand was the place to do it. He had a couple connections in Vegas with longtime people that could get him in the door to pitch this race. And, uh, yeah, so it was uh, one of those deals. And uh, he made it happen, man. And the story goes into it. Uh, he teamed up with Mike DeStefano, who was an old Mike Goodwin guy from when Mike Goodwin started Supercross. And so he teamed up with DeStefano, who would be the, the known guy in the industry for promoting. He teamed up with uh, a guy named Ron Loomis, who would get him in the door in the casinos here in Vegas, um, and then uh, he did it himself, and he pitched it, and uh, it worked. It actually worked. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, obviously, anyone who had been to Bercy had this idea of what if we had one like this in America, but only Eric Bernard pulled it off. Not really well-known at the time. Now, if people behind the scenes aren't aware, because he started the U.S. Open, that's a really big calling card for Eric. He also started the Enduro Cross Series and still runs it to this day. If you go to Red Bull Straight Rhythm, if you go to most of the international events, uh, when X Games has moto events, Eric is always there as, like, the guy. If you're hosting a, a one-time, one-off Supercross motocross race, you call Eric. Now it's well-established, but a lot of it started because of his success. You, you forgot Minimoto. You forgot Minimoto. <laughs> yes. Maybe on purpose. Yeah, wow, yeah, Minimoto. Yeah. Didn't you announce yes. Minimoto? No, I was big with Endurocross. Oh. Uh, uh, Eric and I and the Endurocross relationship, I've been in and out. I was right there toward the beginning of Endurocross, but I never did Minimoto. Oh, I thought you were in. I thought you got, I got think, the call from Minimoto. I think here's why Minimoto ran on the same weekend in Vegas as the Supercross finals, right? Yeah. 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 Well, as we can get into here, at the time, being the live webcast announcer for Supercross itself, mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to do business with Eric in the same town in the same weekend. Uh, <laughs> not there was some friction through not, the years. Not going to happen. That's part of this story. Yeah, it was crazy how he. So Eric, Eric gets the sanctioning from AMA for for a Supercross to, to run a Supercross, and yep. then gets sued from that from the folks that run Feld now, but they were Pace Motorsports back then. Different people were at the very head of it: Charlie Mancuso, Gary Becker, a couple of them. They're in the story, and Eric gets sued for using the word Supercross, and he's like, "Listen, I got it from the AMA. Like, go." Take it up with the AMA. Like, the AMA should have said, hey, man, we can't give you the term Supercross. Like, we can't, you can't sanction a race. I, it totally boggles my mind that the AMA did this. And Weege, as you and I never know. Change. Never change. Never change. Never change. Never change. Uh, yeah. So, you know what I mean? And then, so the, the race almost doesn't happen because of lawsuits. They eventually settle. Eric sells the race for a ton of money uh, and uh, eventually just runs it for the guys at uh, Feld slash Pace Motorsports back then. Um, but yeah, man, absolutely crazy. It's all it's all in the story, and um, it's it's nuts. Yeah. So, what makes this always interesting here is that the term Supercross is not owned by anyone. I believe Steve, through your own research, I think you always claim that it's Dave Despain, who people might remember as no, TV announcer. No, I, I didn't. Time. I was well, not my research. This was I believe this was Davy's research. Oh, Davy says yeah. Dave Despain. Yeah, coined the term. Supercross is a generic term. It, the, the original event you know, in the Los Angeles Coliseum was called the Super Bowl of Motocross. And somewhere along the way, it just got shortened to Supercross. Davey says that it was Dave Despain, 
I believe working for the AMA at the time, that just started using it not as a trademarked brand, but as just a shorter way to type Super Bowl of motocross. Yeah. And then it just kind of catches on. And the next thing you know, it's a term, but no one owns it. So it's always difficult. I guess if you're Eric and the AMA says, yeah, you can hold an event. You can call it a Supercross. Yeah. I mean, it's called the Paris Supercross, the Bercy Supercross, right? Yeah. Yeah. These are generic terms. Yeah. But where they get caught is apparently the AMA has rules on the books to this day that Which, it takes a certain amount of fans in a certain size seats, building. Certain seats. Yeah, seats. Certain right. Yes. You have to have 30 some thousand seats for it to actually be called a Supercross. If it's smaller than that. It's an arena cross. Which is fine and makes sense and all of that, but then they don't sell Eric Pennard the sanction. Yeah. 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 They just let yeah. him yeah. call it Supercross yeah. and sold him the sanction. Because it was more money. With so less the, than 30000 Yeah, yeah. Seats. So then the folks at Feld and Pace threw yep. their hands up and said, you can't call it a Supercross. Um, yep. And that's where the whole legal story begins for Eric Pennard. And you have to read about it. But yeah, it, it's uh, it's nuts, man. Um Really, well, you really can read about it, but as we learned, um, when you talk to these folks 23 years later, as you did, they're not as aggro as they probably were back then. Now everybody's I cool. I, I <laughs> absolutely. I, I mean, you listen, I called Charlie Mancuso. I called, called Todd Gendro. I went to Gary Becker's office to try to get the real story behind all this, and all of them are really, really nice uh, about this, and I'm sure it didn't go down like that back in the day, we, as you would assume so but hey whatever uh it's all in the story right so their responses are there and you can judge for them yourself as the reader and see what they read see what they said and all of that so um well yeah. supercross is not a real it, it you always have to put all these shows that we do these liat erasables in the context of the time supercross was in a very quick and rapid growth stage we've talked a million times about how cruddy the series was in say 95 and 96 they always use the example of the was it 96 that the banquet was yeah, yeah. hanging out in a flatbed truck? It was a truck. flatbed truck in Denver, Colorado, yeah. Yes, and then they have a giant banquet for hundreds of thousands of dollars budget in Vegas, you know, two years later. Um, and the I think the crowd size at Supercross was – the crowd sizes are growing massively. Supercross finally has promoters who know what they're doing. For the original history of Supercross, the series had a bunch of different promoters all working together. Once it all got bought and sold and – uh, consolidated into one group, the sport finally got the promotion and the effort and the budget that it needed to grow. So it's growing so quickly that I'm sure when something pops up on the radar, oh yeah, they attack it like pit bulls. Like they don't want anyone taking what is appearing to be this huge gold mine that they finally figured out. So yeah, I'm sure they came out him a lot more aggressively than they're all yeah. saying they did now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was uh, it was a cool race. They they had lasers and fog, as I said. And Eric Rick Johnson did the announcing with Larry Nastin. That was a quite of a combo uh, to have the announcers yep. there. And um, uh, John Savitsky did the track, a, a longtime track builder. Uh, this thing was pretty legit, and it was a hundred thousand dollars for the win. And I can't stress that enough. Like that was a big, big number. So big, in fact, we that the uh, it's still a hundred thousand dollars for the Monster Cup. It has not yeah, changed. No, there is a million if you sweep all the events, but when that doesn't happen, yeah. it's been about 50-50. Yeah, it's still a hundred grand. And the other thing that I remember, not just a hundred grand of the winner, the entire purse for all the positions was massive. And I remember reading about this event every year, and it'd say, you know, Ryan Hughes went five seven on the two nights, and he made nine grand or something yeah. like that. Yeah, uh, like, dude, well, they're I, all getting paid. I've got in front of me hundred thousand dollars for first, thirty five for second, seventeen for third, ten for fourth. 
uh, eight grand for fifth, seven grand, and down, down, down that way. So yeah, yeah. So eight grand for fifth. Yeah, that's amazing. And it was about nine to win a Supercross back then, I believe. Wow. Yeah. So you're basically getting the win, the winner's purse for fifth. Um, wow. At, at the first one. So what was uh, okay? So going back here. Well, first let's talk about Maxis. Uh, we just saw the news drop. Cade Clayson, Jace Kessler added to the SGB Honda squad. Using Max's tires, that's pretty cool. Um, that is still going to be team fun over there. There's no doubt. And they're going to use Max's tires. Great mountain bike tires, MXSTs developed by Jeremy McGrath. Mountain bike, UTV tires, uh, uh, light truck tires, trailer tires. Maxis.com for more information. You know, Maxis, I believe, was a big sponsor of the U.S. Open for many years. By the they way. were. Absolutely. They were, they were on yep, board. Maxis and, and then U.S. Open for a while. Also, Maxis, the official tire of Team Italy for the MXDN. Yes. Lupino. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's awesome. Lupino wearing the Maxis hat on the podium for Team Italy. Absolutely. So uh, these And this thing's been proven at the uh, the highest level. So thanks to those guys. Blends all as well. Uh, the GNCC series, they, they, they're they crushing it over there in, in the quad class with the with the, uh, G, with the blends all blend. Uh, Michael Lessi blends all stuff. 4T, 2T racing lubricants. Visit blendsall.com. Follow them at blendsall on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, you know Tony Alessi, as you like to say, Weege, Tony Alessi's not going to leave anything to chance. He's going to use nope. the best oil. Two-stroke or four-stroke, and Mike's got a bunch of both. But lots of Blenzol. Yeah. And, Weege, Johnny Knowles, Scott Goggles, on board oh, with the Leo. Oh, so pumped. He likes this show. That's why he's on this show. He loves this podcast. Well, yes. Now, we have to explain how this works with our buddy Johnny Knowles, longtime Goggle mastermind at Scott. Uh... As the season goes on, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, he starts getting more angry and bitter <laughs> and burned out about everything, right? But then we get into the offseason. I like how you say about everything, which is true. Everything, yes. Right, everything. Right, right. But then we get into the offseason, and he starts to be rejuvenated. He Almost like he finds a fountain of youth, our buddy John Knowles. And he has discovered this Liat Rerasables podcast. He loves it. He's all in. He, now he's actually positive and stoked on things. So Scott Goggles has come on board. And let's be honest, it's almost the perfect sponsor, right? Because through all the history of the sport, Scott yeah. Goggles is just always there. Like any of these stories we talk about, yep. Scott Goggles is involved. They're, no, you're absolutely a, uh, right. Uh, iconic you're, brand. Uh, Anderson, yep. Pro Circuit, Caleb Russell, Chad Ween, and Walker Fowler choose Scott Goggles. And uh, they get the quality product and the support from Scott. Uh, they're excited to relive iconic moments in the sport with the Reraceables podcast, many of which have included Scott Goggles. Scott, right. the only goggle made in the USA. Uh, they've been around forever, and they're the global leader in innovation, technology, and design. they got got uh, mountain bike products also and mountain bikes. And, and Weed, you, you ride a Scott mountain bike. Uh, so, do. yeah, absolutely. Thanks to the guys at Scott for coming on board this podcast and, uh, and Johnny Knowles. And as Brock Hepler said, Weed. The guys at Scott Goggles knew it was going to rain today. <laughs> you love that moment. That was a time when they shine. <laughs> yes, right. that is a time we shine. Right. Yep. Uh, Liat.com, of course, use the, use the contact form at pulpmex.com to, uh, to, get us, uh, to get you a self for code to save. And uh, thanks to Liat for sponsoring this pod. So the first edition we each of, the, of the U.S. Open comes, and um, basically uh, it is a Jeremy who's Jeremy McGrath is supposed to win. Yes, Jeremy McGrath is supposed to win. There is no He's doubt. supposed to win. Yeah, there was betting odds. Our buddy Eric Johnson helped set the betting odds, and we talk about that in the story. You could bet on the racers, and Jeremy McGrath was uh, losing money to bet on Jeremy McGrath to win. Like you were going to lose money. Yeah, yeah. You had to put up 110 to get back 100 or something for Jeremy McGrath. 
That's... Okay, forget the 72 wins yeah. and seven titles. That might be the most staggering stat. Yeah. If you bet on Jeremy McGrath to win, you'd still lose money. Yeah, something like that. Yep. <laughs> the surest bet in the history of it, bets. It, it was it was insane, his odds were. Uh, so <laughs> he, was, he showed up there, and he won the second night, but a bad start in the first night. And listen, and, and this is talked about in the story, it was kind of sandy and not a great track year one. Eric was forced to use some different dirt. Because uh, guess what? He couldn't use a supercross dirt. Um, so he was used. So it was a little sandier than the guys would have liked. And uh, it was a, a, a tough race, tighter than they probably thought they would be. Jeremy gets a bad start in, uh, in the uh, first night, first night main event. And uh, Robbie Renard goes on to win. Robbie was on it all weekend long. I remember that. He looked great. And, uh, but the winner, after two nights of racing, Damon Huffman. Damon Huffman on a Cowie goes 2-2 in the two nights, takes the first ever overall. He's in the story. Ryan Hughes second, Jeremy McGrath third. What a what a unexpected results. Yeah, we had Huffman on the show a couple weeks ago, and we talked about uh, winning the 125 National at Troy, Ohio. Really a good character, and in the story, he writes, hey, at least I got that on McGrath, because McGrath never won the race, oddly enough. It never worked out. Never. And and also, too, 1998, the first year of the U.S. Open, some guy named Ricky Carmichael jumps to the big bike, two of 252 two stroke, which he would go on to ride in 99. And his U.S. Open goes terrible. As he says in the story, he was in the deep end and not ready to yeah. not ready to swim with these guys. You know, that's quite an endorsement of this event, though, because Carmichael historically didn't do a lot of the offseason events. He was kind of on that pace to do some. And then he got hurt one time at Bercy and then none. And then it became the trend, right? If you're serious about winning races, you do not race off-season events in Europe. But he did always do this one. It wasn't in Europe, obviously. But Carmichael was not a, I'm going to make all the money I can racing every off-season event out there. But he always did this one. Uh, so I think it says a lot about the event and, and what he thought of it. Yeah, absolutely right. So um, it was interesting. They had a opening ceremonies. They had a, a disco ball. Lowered down from the yep. ceiling with Jimmy Lewis in it, standing in for Jimmy for Jeremy McGrath. <laughs> Fake McGrath. Yeah, because Jeremy said he wasn't going to do that. It was kind of sketchy. Uh, yeah. So Ice T was there. Yeah, Ice T the was there. Uh, who knew? Ice T's in the moto. Um, so yeah. yeah, it was. It was. Oh, a, uh, but uh, Ice T was in Fresno Smooth, right? Oh, he was. That's right. That's right. That's this right. is like right in the wheelhouse. Yeah, I forgot about yes. that. Yes. Uh, so Ice T, yeah. yeah, no, no doubt, Ice T is there. Uh, some guy named yeah. Tim Ferry. Uh, comes in and gets fifteenth, uh, so good okay. good job, Tim Ferry. Um, and, and yeah, so that was the first edition, and uh, pretty successful. Eric says all the tickets were sold out pretty quick, um, and, and that that right away made the race very very successful. And I think he understated honestly how profitable it was. Well, it is kind of mind blowing to know that all these obstacles were stacked up. They had to spend a lot more money than they expected. They still paid that huge purse. And they still made a lot of money. <laughs> yes, exactly. That tells exactly. you something right there. Right. They had yeah. no problem paying the purse. Uh, yep. And they had no problem getting sponsors. And they had no problem making a ton of money. Thank you. Very, very interesting. <laughs> uh, do you want to yeah. talk to Eric? Let's do it. Let's yep. do it. Here's Eric Bernard uh, talking about the story and the starting and uh, everything else with the U.S. Open. And now, as promised on the Lee at Re-Raceables, uh, brought to you by Max's Blenzol and the guys at Scott, uh, we have the founder, the creator the brains behind the U.S. Open of Supercross, Eric Pernard. What's up, Eric? How are you, man? Hey, good morning, Steve and Luigi. So, so good to be here with you guys. Doing great. I had an epic motorcycle ride yesterday, so my mood is 
absolutely on, on top of the world. Fantastic. Good to hear. Well, listen, as we talked about at the top, this thing was a, a pretty cool deal. We did a big story on it on the RacerX uh, digital magazine. It's free to read for everybody. After you read that, Eric, uh, put it together, and after you read what everybody had to say, what would you think of it? What did you think of the story? I honestly think it was top-notch. The accuracy was, I mean, phenomenal. I mean, it's like I, 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 I'm almost wondering if none of you guys were in my back pocket when I was doing that. You know? So <laughs> it's uh, like you, you, were, you heard stuff that I never knew people could know. And uh, I think the group of people you interviewed was awesome. And, uh, you know, honestly, it gave me goosebumps more than once reading that, uh, that story. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I give you a 10 for that, honestly. That, and uh, thank you. It's, you know, it's, it's touching me personally a mm-hmm. lot, obviously. But, uh, you know, you, you read a story like that and you're like, wow, you know, that was, that was cool. You know, Weed, you're my boss at Racer X. You hear how accurate I was? You see how good of a job I did? On that this story? is the first time anyone has ever accused Steve of being accurate. He's been accused of a lot of things, Eric, but not, not accurate. You know what, though? This works. The only time Steve writes something good is when every single thing is words from someone else and not him. See how, much, how that improves? Oh, I walked into that hey, one. Jeff, I really walked into you, that one. That's when we lost you. When you started to say bad things about Steve, we had the dis- yeah, yeah. uh, disconnect, yeah. so yeah. watch out. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to blame my audio. He's in control here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, no, it was, uh, it was a really fun thing to put together for sure eric and uh it was it was nuts i the the it's funny though eric the you know obviously you started the race and as chronicled in the story the guys at uh uh feld which were not which were then uh pace and there was a different regime in charge than, than it was oh, now yeah. gary becker and charlie mancuso um it's funny they, they were going after you for the name of supercross and everything else but in the story you know, we're 20 years removed, Eric. Everybody was pretty cool about it, right? Like, it was funny how everyone was yeah. just like, ah, you know. <laughs> so. that's, that's for sure. And it, and it makes you feel good because, you know, even even the people that were really not cool about it turned out to be good friends mm-hmm. in, in, yep. in the long run. And, uh, you know, it was it was good to see that uh, all that, that good chemistry was not erased, you know, after the years. So that's... Uh, that, that's that was a feel good story because as as we know the U.S. Open changed a few things in our sports mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't seem to be a you know a, a drama anymore even though it was a slightly a drama for a couple of years. Yeah, I, I just think the the biggest thing to me, one of the big takeaways is in 1998 you set the winner's purse at a hundred thousand dollars, and we're in 2000, the last edition of the Monster Cup in 2019 or whenever. It was still a hundred thousand oh, dollars, which should give you an idea. Of, same numbers. Which yeah. <laughs> should give you an idea of how big that was in '98 for you to put together for these guys. Yes, no, no. It's uh, yeah. We 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 raised the bar very high, and actually, it was raised one time higher. Is uh, when we did the Jeremy McGrath Invitational one one time. You know, mm, yep. and uh, and and Kevin Wyndham walked away. I remember giving him the check for like one sixty, which uh, to my to my memory is the biggest check I ever gave. You know, for as a purse. Of yeah, course, right, right. You know. uh, it's interesting though to hear. You know, we could have, I guess, in the sense of accuracy, we had to report it as the people said. Uh, but I was shocked also when I'm reading this to know everybody's just a love fest for Eric, a love fest for the event. We had heard that there were lawsuits over the name, and, and eventually they bought you out. Uh, so you're saying that it was maybe a little bit more gnarly in 1998 
uh, than the love fest that we're seeing in 2021 <laughs> in this story? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay. You know, you know, time as a as 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 a way of making things worse or better, but yep. rarely exactly like it was. Yeah. As much as the story was exactly like it was, you know, the the vibe today about what it was is is definitely different than than 1998 vibe. You know, oh, okay. Now my big takeaway. I, I, I is was from... letting people start my car in the morning. You know, I was. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, now they're just saying they sued you for a dollar, and you're an innovator, and you're a great guy, and friends forever. So congratulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I was also surprised. I thought, and again, I was in those earliest days. I wasn't in the industry, right? So I'm just a fan reading in Cycle News. I also thought that you had heat with McGrath when he did not race in. But then you explained you were actually trying to cover for him to make his yeah, exit more graceful. Yes, it was. You know, I got caught, caught in a crossfire, which is pretty much what we all do throughout life. You know, we get caught in crossfires, and uh, there was definitely a divorce going between Fox and Jeremy. And uh, you know, I I, I love Jeremy. And uh, I loved Fox, so it was a difficult situation. Just like when you have a divorce with your best friends, you know, you're trying to be cruel to both sides and um, you know I didn't choose a side and I I think Jeremy was respectful of my position but you know I understood that it was the end of an era between him and Fox and uh, that was sad but that was uh, you know that could not be changed that was the way it was Um, you fell on the sword because the articles I remember reading it made it seem like McGrath and this promoter I didn't know who you were at the time like it would look like you two didn't get along, but really you were just covering. It wasn't really between you and McGrath. You guys were fine. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> I never, never had a, a bad day with Jeremy because you know, I mean, he even hired me to produce his own race a few That's years right. later. You know, so um, I think it's funny. I, I, you know, the whole thing about Jeremy not racing, and and that was a blow to the event for sure, publicly wise. And I asked Pete Fox, you know, and in the story, he's just like, yeah, I don't really remember much about the, yeah, sure, Pete. Sure, you don't remember much about it. <laughs> Pete, Pete wanted to just gloss over that part right away. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Now, the other thing that blows my mind, the financials, first of all, the $100,000 purse, everybody knew that. But you did get into a little bit of, you know, how much the building cost and the opening ceremonies. And then you had to spend more on dirt than you expected and all these other expenses. To me, it shows how much revenue there is to play with here because you ended up dealing with all this, and apparently you didn't go bankrupt the first year. So there was a decent amount of revenue to at yes. least work through these issues. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no question that uh, uh, the U.S. Open was extremely good, you know, financially-wise, and um, there is no question that we could do all those things. You know, if we wouldn't have been that successful – could have been putting us uh, barely up very, very quickly, you know, and that's, uh, you know, we didn't plan on, on having to spend so much money in, uh, in fighting various lawsuits and stuff like that. <laughs> but, you know, the good news is we could afford it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you... that's, that's exactly the point I was making. There was enough money to be made that you, you – that's how much money could be made if you do a race – well and it's well received yes um, exactly and, uh, we, and, 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 oh. and it was it, it was different times you know i mean uh, uh, honestly when i see today what uh, we have to deal with to get top riders to do races uh it, it became a lot more complicated with time you know like oh, okay yeah it's you know it was just usually just a, a moot point 
to make it happen or not. Uh, today, it's a lot more complicated with teams, agents, you know, family. It's 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 a multi-layer, you know, challenge to get riders to do international races, and and COVID has created a a, a substantial, oh, you know, yeah. added challenge. Yeah. Uh, Weege, a couple things. Uh, one is, uh, as you've told Eric before, your your theory on Eric is 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 pretty pretty funny uh, about the promoter. You go ahead and tell people. Oh yeah, I'll, yep. I'll explain. And Eric, we've talked about this. Okay, right. look, you are basically in the line of work that most people you'd probably be like lawyer level. Like people should hate you. That's the line of work you're in. You're the promoter, and usually promoters, as they say, even on their best day, they're maybe neutral. But most of the time, people think that they're screwing them over Mm -hmm. or taking their money or they're dishonest. Yet you somehow have – I have not yet met a person that doesn't like you. You have a 100% approval rate (laughs) while doing a job that everybody usually hates. And you told me this theory. You're like, well, I'm just honest. I just never promise someone something that I can't do. And if you tell them straight up, I'm sorry, no, they're usually cool with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you know, and on top of it, uh, I've got a lovely wife, which helps, you know, it's always, <laughs> good, to, <laughs> always good to have a very nice wife with you. Okay. And, yeah. I've been forgiven a lot because I've got a, a lovely American wife with me. You know, if I would have been only, <laughs> only, only the French guy, I think I, I, would, I would have been buried a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's credibility. They're like, if she likes him, then I guess we'll like him yeah, too. Yeah, you know, all, all writers were always super friendly with me because, because they really like my wife too. You know, so it's, uh, it's makes, uh, it makes, uh, you know, it's, uh, she'll laugh about that. But I always told her, I say, oh, I'm only here because you helped me you yeah. stay alive. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I thought one of the one of the favorite moments for me doing the story is is and Eric, you helped me get in contact with Gary Becker, who was really in the sport only for you know four or five years as Pace yeah. Motorsports uh, head of Pace Motorsports. His dad, Alan Becker, a legendary promoter. So you helped me get in touch with Gary Becker when the series was in Houston. I went down there to talk to him, and what a hell of a guy! What great stories! Um, I, he provided maybe the moment of the story for me where he was like. I got this French guy who came to America. He's 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 he's, he sold a dealership. You know, he's promoting a race. He's got a beautiful American wife. I'm suing the American dream. Why am I doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Gary was uh, Gary was awesome. They're suing the American dream. So uh, yeah, that was great. (laughs) Oh man, that's that's definitely the the story. But you know, I mean, Gary was uh, was a dream to work. Even even fighting him was fun because the guy. has such a good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He was he was not in it for the money. Uh, everything. He was just like having couple principal issues. You know, we understood very quickly. And uh, I mean, Gary Gary was like, "Hey, the AMA did something wrong," and there's no question about it that mm-hmm. you know the AMA did something wrong. You know, I mean, it's they sold us a, a sanction that was not matching what they had sold and um, so, sold to Pace at the time. Yeah. And my only frustration is why was that getting caught in the middle of it? I agree. I you didn't know? make sense to me. The whole thing didn't make sense to me. Go after the AMA. I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and it's a good good old American way where you basically carpet bomb everybody. You know, I mean, like uh, – 
you know, like, hey, guys, I like I say, I went to McDonald's, they sold me a Big Mac, and you're telling me it's not a Big Mac. Right. It's like, right. It's, <laughs> if you're not happy with that, just go to McDonald's. You yeah, know? yeah. I, I, I'm, 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 imagine that, Weege. The AMA just said to Eric, here, here's a Supercross sanction. Here's a Supercross sanction, right? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming that it was a decent uh, price oh, yeah. getting yeah, yeah. it was. It was, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, super, at the time, I'm sure it was the, an average, the, the, an average family income for the year, mm-hmm. you know, to pay for one time yeah. Supercross. So I paid what Pace was paying 16 times a year. Yep. And, um, you know, they could have been creating a different, like they, I didn't want it to be called an arena cross, of course, but, you know, they, they could have been making a exhibition Supercross uh, sanction fee, you know, something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But they didn't. Yeah. They yeah. basically took the PACE contract and made me pay, yeah. you know, a sixteenth of it, you know, which I, yeah. I was happy with that. But I didn't know I was getting myself in boiling water. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is um, I, I believe isn't there even a problem where there's a rule, right, where a certain amount of seats, you have to have a building yeah. – with a certain amount of fans to be considered supercross, and they didn't even follow that rule. They just exactly the that that, anyway. that was a big uh, that was a big uh, big issue. That was uh, the seating. Supercross had to be in a thirty five thousand seat stadium, and we were in a seventeen thousand mm-hmm. seat arena, and uh, that part was completely unknown to us. And you know, they had no reason to know that. And you know, so uh, the disappointment we had with the AMA really pushed us in in Gary's arms in Gary's arms you know we yeah. were like you know this guy's great he's honest with us he's telling us exactly how it's going and um you know it's really a story of uh, you you have a great kid and you you'd rather kind of like give it to adoption than than ruin it yeah you, know, you don't yeah. want your, your ego to to allow you to go down with it and uh, that baby was so so cool and uh, that you know it was hard, but not that hard at the same time because I knew that peace will be around the race after well, that. And know? they wrote you a big check, Eric. I mean, that helped too. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Um, Which never hurts. Yeah, no, never, never hurts. hurts. One thing that I think – so I went to the original race uh, as a, a mechanic back then and you know just had some industry passes or whatever. And I remember it being a, a success and I remember it being really, really cool. And I had never been to Bercy at this point. So to me, this was – you know, uh, the closest thing I was going to get. One thing, though, Eric, in the story that – so you yourself and the Fox Brothers sat down to talk about ticket prices. You've locked the race in. You set the ticket prices at $100 for some of them, um, which yeah. is which was high. But you sold out right away. Like, this thing was going to work right away, uh, which I didn't – look, at the time, and, and what I learned from – was that you guys were never in a position where you were hoping people were going to show up. This thing was a massive success. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh. I, I, the, the, yeah. this, this race was a massive success right away. The tickets, yes. ticket sales sold right uh, away. Yes, we, we, we sold out. I think the race went on sale at, at the last Supercross, and by within 30 days, it was sold out. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Which, which we, I don't remember, like, you know, I don't remember that part of it being like, working so well well it is surprising because look eric you've been involved with uh some other events but there's been tons of other attempts i you know what i always bring up as the prime example do you remember when you were probably involved were you involved with the navy moto x games that espn ran were you involved no 
No. Oh, okay. No. Oh, yeah. I know you were yeah, close funny. with X Games, but not yeah, that one. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, yeah. As a matter of fact, it's uh, that, that was the first time ESPN flew me in to look at a project. So that was my first my first involvement with ESPN, but totally as an observer mm. and to give them, you know, my uh, my report and opinion. So yes, I remember that very well. And that race, okay, Weege, okay, that race didn't work, Weege. Well, that's my point. Yeah. Like we've seen yes. many people try to have Supercross, and look, this is ESPN, this is X Games, this is in Qualcomm Stadium at San Diego, which had held many popular Supercross races before. It had Ricky Carmichael in it. It had all the ingredients, and it had. Uh, a tenth of the crowd of a regular Supercross round. So what yeah, I've yeah, seen, yeah. people can hold what appear to be cool events, what appear to be big events. They don't automatically pack the house. But yours actually did. It's not yeah. something to take for granted. No, no, but it's location, location, location. You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it took me 20 years to realize, you know, the, the Paris Supercross, as we call it, Bercy, you know, was more location than anything else. You know, and and, and um, when I realized that, that was the time I pretty much got in gear for the for the for the U.S. Open. You know, I mean, not it took me ten years, not twenty years, uh, but you know, there's nothing like a great location. It's a it's a it's a real estate rule, and it's also a successful event rule. Mm. You have to be at the right place, and, and if you can be at the right time, it's perfect. And like I said, uh, the timing was fantastic because there was very few races on the West Coast at the time. So we were not fighting three Anaheim, you know, uh-huh. five San Diego, two Aucklands, and whatever. Right, you know, right. We were, there was really, um, I wouldn't say a starving market, but people were, the, the West Coast crowd had a lot less races. To, to attend. So, you know, great location, MGM Grand, and, uh, and, and good timing within the, you know, within the history of uh, Supercross, and, and, you know, competent people uh, on top of it, which, which never hurts. Hey, so, okay, so a, a key then you're saying is being in Vegas, not just anywhere, but Vegas, and then obviously the MGM Grand is pretty new and spectacular at that point. So yeah. that helps a lot. Uh, we all know now Supercross had the finals in Vegas for 20 years. They had Monster Cup. They had U.S. Open. <clears throat> the Supercross industry going to the Circle Bar and partying and hanging out and making a destination, that's become like woven into the industry. Everybody knows it. Was that a little not as known? Is that a little bit fresh in, in 1998 of like, hey, man, this really plays well. These motocross guys, they love to come to Vegas. They love to hang out. Was that a little bit new? Uh, compared to what oh, we know now, now it's taken yeah, for granted. Com- I think it was completely new because, oh, okay. you know, some Boyd, I think we started there like in early 90s or something. So it, Vegas was far from being as sexy as it is now. And, and the MGM Grand was really like a turning point. You know, I mean, that was really one, uh, you know, and I was living in Vegas, so it was pretty, pretty good at knowing the the pulse Mm -hmm. and the mgm grand was really a turning point of exploding vegas on the international scene and being inside the mgm grand was absolutely you know shocking to people in a good way of course so i think it's uh you know today there's not that environment you could do that because you know they they've built you know after that they built one mgm grand every year in vegas you know i mean it's like there was there was those giant hotels that were billion-dollar hotels popping out everywhere. And, um, you know, the late 90s were a time of, you know, 
very big explosion in Las Vegas, and we were like right there, you know, right there. Uh -huh. Makes sense. Yep. Um, Once again, it's timing. Timing is everything. I keep telling people. Did uh, <laughs> did anything in the story, Eric, surprise you, or anything? Uh, anybody's words catch you uh, by surprise or anything? No, not really. Short no. of the kindness. You okay. Know, I mean, everybody yeah. was super kind. You know, I mean. You know, like look, Todd was awesome. Todd Jandro, the, the head of motorsport for Feld. And he was definitely the spy in chief. Yeah. We gave him a VIP pass. And, you know, I, and I, I do remember after the U.S. Open, you know, calling, calling Feld and say, guys, you know, we still can work together. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be calling riders because I was lining up Paris with, uh, with for Xavier. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's like, hey, guys, I'm a one-guy race. You know, I don't believe all the BS <laughs> that I'm going to start a series or something because, you know, at the time we didn't have social media. Mm -hmm. If we had had social media in 98, uh, you know, people would have built – the series that I never wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and, uh, so it was like, I felt there was some people, I mean, at Pace, there were some people totally convinced that, uh, you know, I created a model that was going to become, you know, you know, a, a threat to them, which, you know, People know me by now, all those guys, and they mm -hmm. know I like my life. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, don't want to, I don't want to do 20 races a year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think the purse got everybody's ears up, right? Like, look, it, look, Supercross is profitable. There is no doubt about that. And you know, the less you can pay to the talent, the better. And it it probably does need to be raised up. And I've said this over and over. But in 1998, to pay a hundred thousand dollars, that had to get some ears perked up. Like, whoa, whoa, what is this guy doing? We can't do that. We, you know what I mean? That to me exactly. is where exactly. they. Yeah, that to me is where they yeah. are like. This cannot happen. <laughs> so. Yes, 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 yes. Uh. No, and it's, uh, you know, when you look, look at it 25, 23 years later, you, you understand where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, you've been selling your luxury car, you know, and then Lexus comes and it's 50 grand cheaper than a Benz. And you're like, oh, how can you do that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> almost lost yeah. in all of this is Damon Huffman winning the first one. <laughs> yes. He almost lost yes. in everything, all the hype, all the stories. Damon Huffman pulled off the win. Uh, he still wants a trophy. Uh, Eric, he, he's very yeah, upset. Yeah, trophy, I can tell him where the trophy is. Okay. The trophy is at James Stewart. You know, I mean, James won the last U.S. Open, and I'm telling you, he's not letting it go because, <laughs> uh, you know, a few years ago, we had the idea, say, hey, where's this trophy? And I was talking with uh, with my old friend, Tim Clark, and he called me about making a story, and, and I, I kind of, like, checked if uh, if James would let it go. And it, no, it's mm -hmm. like it's in his trophy room, and he's not going to uh, let it go. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think, Wade? Do you think we can get it? Or? I didn't so that is the whole issue. It is a traveling trophy. There's one trophy yeah, that yeah. goes to the winner each it's, year. Yeah, it's a perpetual trophy. That was the yeah. idea. It was a, it was a, it was Greg Fox idea or Greg and Pete mm -hmm. Fox idea, and I'm like sure. And and they they build it, you know, and uh, and they paid for it, which is even better, you know. But it was a it was a spectacular trophy, like maybe. Ten twenty thousand dollars, you know. I mean, really, really big. And uh, I, you know, I we it was going the first year. It went to Kawasaki. It stayed there. After that, you know, uh, Ed May got it, and, and then it moved on. You know. 
it's unfortunate there's this uh, iconic photo that you see all the time of Huffman with, with Rick Johnson, who is one of the announcers, holding the trophy. But I didn't yeah. realize that was probably the last time he ever touched it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think we're getting it back. Anyone? Can anyone get a hold of Stu real quick? Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think that's going to happen. So <laughs> I don't think yeah. we're getting Stu to get the trophy back. Hey, you know what, though? You bring up a good point. I was always surprised. We know, and as you said, as the years go by, it gets harder and harder to get riders to do off-season races. So every year when the U.S. Open would roll around, it was always who's going to race it. But I got to admit that for the most part, all the way to the end, and you weren't running it at this point, but Stu and Carmichael pretty much raced it all the time. Reed, yeah, they managed to get the big names to do it most of the time. Yeah, I yeah. Was, and I was you really know, surprised we, by that. Do you think that was difficult, even in the years you were running it? Was it difficult to convince people? Did you have people on the fence, or were they pretty much all in all the time? I mean, during my time, I was very lucky. To, to have a very strong and still do friendship with Ricky. And, and Ricky carried my time with, with him, you know, uh-huh. because Ricky kind of like really loved the U.S. Open. He came, he came like one of his first Supercross. And, and, and year after year, he, he got better and won it a couple times. Uh, and I think what Ricky loved, uh, James was basically drafting, you know. And so we had a really good run of five six years where we, the ricky and the james generation kind of like love the race mm-hmm. and and they love all the aspect i don't remember really struggling ever because i was involved till 2004 when i left uh pace Feld, you know and um that i don't remember struggling struggling with big talent you know they 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 Pretty much ninety percent of them were willing to be part of it, and uh, you know it was it was a great race, great weekend. You know everybody's family was loving being in Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know the, the Vegas the Vegas magic was was at its you know finest at the time. You know now now we kind of don't know anymore. You know we we all of us within the industry we don't really know if we want another race in Vegas anymore. Well, that yeah. that leads yeah, me to well. you know that leads me to the next question. At the end of the monster, the end of the U.S. Open was you know not great. Uh, I remember one of the last years I was there. Um, I think I went the last year. It was a half full arena, four fifties. You know, James was there. Um, it just kind of ran its course the, with the bigger bikes, I think, and 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 whatever. You know, things were done. And and honestly, like I don't think the Monster Cup has really worked. I don't think I, I'm not gonna talk about it like chad did in the story um but uh i yeah. don't think it's worked i i just i know they wanted to create uh they, they they wanted to create a unique event a stand on its own event and you know they have the three mains and they have the million dollars if you sweep it and we i don't think it's worked you know well the yeah there's i i think uh the teams liked it right because they're like oh it's more like a real supercross and we can test and i guess they were using that as a a guiding light uh, but the one thing that's really hard to describe if, if, you, if a fan never went to the U.S. Open, and it's the same thing with the old Bercy Stadium, that atmosphere and how tight it was and the fans being right on top of it, it is different than a Supercross, and it lost that yeah. once it went to regular stadium. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, the old I mean, Bercy it, it, building, I'm sure your building now, Eric, in Paris is nicer probably than the old Bercy Stadium. But it doesn't oh, yeah. have the fans hanging over the track. Absolutely, anymore. absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, there's no question. It's a, it's a difference between an arena and a stadium. You know, I mean, it's yeah. like a, just picture basketball being played in a big stadium. You know, maybe there would be more spectators, but then the the vibe would be gone, and uh, that's been really uh, a big issue. Uh, you know, between the politics and the the 
the bikes becoming more and more powerful. Uh, you know, I think that time was due to mm -hmm. move away from arenas. Uh, but to me, uh, and I'm going to use a, a Formula One analogy, you know, Bercy or the US Open was the Monaco Grand Prix. You know, the Monaco Grand Prix doesn't make any sense. Just like Namur never made any sense for an <laughs> right. XGP as yeah. well. You know, and Namur is dead. Now we still have, I mean, if you look at the big picture of motorsport, we only have the Monaco Formula One GP. That doesn't make any sense. But if you had to choose one race to see, I'm sure you would choose that one. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And you could, you could park your Pulp MX uh, Racer X yacht. In, in the harbor and watch the race. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, absolutely. No one bought a race from us, so we don't quite have it. But, but yeah. if, you, if you'll let us go with you, maybe we can pull this off. Yeah, yeah, says the guy. Did. We, did, we did that in Hawaii. That was the beginning of a fantastic uh, business relationship. You know? oh, but that is... then, yeah, then, then that pesky virus took care of us. One and done. Uh, and hey, yeah. Eric, the entire stadium in Hawaii is now gone, right? Yes, exactly. That's so I don't what think we do. Coming back. Uh, when we get together, we bring destruction. Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. That was, uh, that was so great. no chance of a Hawaiian supercross anytime soon. Oh man, you're gonna make me cry because that was such a great event that just wanted to grow mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, it got shot in in its infancy, you know, and it's uh, yeah, what what can we do? You know, it's the way it is. Yeah, it's the way it is. My it's, my uh, freestyle motocross career is, is also not going well, announcing career. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tried <laughs> right right uh all right eric well man thanks for uh contributing to the story thanks for all you've done in the industry the u.s open was a special time as Weege and i have uh talked about already um really really cool um and uh yeah man thanks for the time the lee at re-raceables no no thank you so much guys and uh thanks for all the good things you do for the industry and hopefully we we can get all together at the at a french race soon you know, working on it. <laughs> uh, hope so. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. Cheers, yeah. guys. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Eric Bernard, Lee at Reraceables. Uh, good stuff. Uh, yeah, Eric's, Eric's a gem, man. Just one of my favorite people in the industry. I'd say the most respected person in the industry when you, as I said to him, temper that with what yeah. his job actually is. It's amazing the universal love of Eric throughout the industry when most people in his position are hated. Right. It's pretty impressive. Right. Yep. Um, most respected after me, or am I second? Uh, not even close. Okay. Not even, not, not uh, even, not even close. Hey, so when you went to this event, by the way, yeah. you see a young Tim Ferry finish 15th, and you go to Las Vegas. Is there any part of a young Steve Matt that said, it's like, this Ferry guy, I see something in him. And you know this town. I can see myself living here someday. <laughs> Negative. I remember okay. very being very stoked that my buddy, JSR, Canadian legend, mm. had made the main. JSR made okay. the main, but he also hit the wall, and uh, that wasn't good. He uh, In one of the main events, he flew into the wall, so that wasn't so good. Um, but I remember um, I hung out with JSR this weekend a little bit. I remember hanging out with, um, uh, I think, Jason McCormick, who I'd worked with at FMF Honda. Uh, him and I were hanging out a little bit uh, after the race. So, yeah, that's kind of a couple memories that I have of that. Also, now, did you know JSR oh, already? Yeah, I already knew JSR. Yeah, I raced against through him. Through Canada. Through Canada, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, and I stayed at his house in 97, the year before, for like a couple Whoa. months. Yeah, for a couple months. So, when wow. I was working for Birdwell. Also, Weege, there was an 80cc halftime 
uh, event. And this this 80 race throughout the years saw the debut. Uh, oh, not the debut, but it, it got Stu out there. Kyle Chisholm won, I think, or they you know did really well one year. Uh, Mike Alessi, uh, also this first year race. Jeff Alessi raced this first. Jeff Alessi started his lifetime of foot and ankle and leg injuries oh. from the U.S. Open crash, either year one or year two. Jeff bailed off in the middle of a triple on a CR-80 and landed flat on the ground. Weege, there was carnage everywhere. We should have asked Eric about that. Um, carnage in the 80 races nonstop the first couple of years. Yeah, that was kind of synonymous with that, putting ADCC riders out on. It's not quite a supercross track, but it's certainly more supercross than what most 80 riders are used to. And that really was kind of a reputation of the amount of crashes for these 80 riders. Yeah, it was not good. No, it was not good. Yep. But James Stewart uh, making his uh, debut was a big deal. I remember that. It was like for me, like debut in front of me, I guess. It was like, holy shit, James Stewart's here, you know? Um, yep. So what year did you first go to the U.S. Open? I don't think I actually first went until I was doing the webcast. So I would assume that had been the 05 uh, Oh, wow. Okay. So you were, yeah. There. So you were not yeah, there when. Again, it was never on my radar. I'm like, what's the big deal with this going to Las Vegas thing until you actually do it? Right. Um, uh, and then you don't want to miss it. So, yeah. but you were obviously a big fan of the sport. And year two sees Jeff Emig win. And I remember, again, I was there. Uh, really, really cool to see Jeff Emig win. Um, he had been fired from Kawasaki a few months before. Uh, he's starting on a privateer Yamaha team, and Fro takes the year two victory. And dude, it was a very popular victory. I remember that. Jeremy didn't race. Uh, good job for Fro. Well, yeah, it's really synonymous, I think, with the event because one of the hallmarks to me became as a weirdo one-off event with a Friday, Saturday. It's Friday, Saturday, right? That's how it worked. Yeah, it wasn't Sunday afternoon. Friday, Saturday. So the two moto format, so to speak, and not every top rider showed up. Most of them did. And then you never knew what level of prep they had. They weren't racing for points. So how hard were they trying? To me, it always led to at least a potential of upset results. And sometimes it really happened. I mean, Huffman winning the first year is an example. And then Emig on like a privateer Yamaha that he put together with his buddies. Uh, shout out to Tim Dixon, my buddy here from Mooresville, North Carolina these days. And Tony Strangio. They eventually built a race team, but at that point it was their debut. And the event is kind of littered with surprise winners. And I think that Fro one really stamped it as, hey, anything can happen with this event. It's not like a regular Supercross. I think that really helped. Yeah, absolutely. It was pretty cool. Uh, RC made his uh, Honda debut there. He made a Suzuki debut there. Um, yeah. So that was that was a big deal for the event over the years. And, and Fro tells a hilarious story. Um, um, well... Let's get let's get to it. Let's drop Fro's story in this in this podcast. Uh, I was going to tell people to go read it, but let's drop Fro's hilarious story uh, in this podcast right now. Here's Jeff Emig talking about the 1999 U.S. Open. Dude, I've got I've yeah. got a side story of all side stories. Okay, this is like a sidebar yeah. of this story. Yeah, okay? yeah. This is a this is a true story, and let's don't let the facts get in the way of it. Yeah. Anyway, so 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 I win the first night. <clears throat> Second night, I've probably won my heat race or whatever. Yep. So I'm sitting in the tour bus, sitting in the back of the bus, like lounge area, with uh, Tony and Dixon. And knock on the door. Strangio goes to get the door. He says, hey, it's it's old man Lusk, mm -hmm. Ezra Lusk's dad. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, what's his name? Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie. Ronnie. Yep. So it's Ronnie Lusk. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> I was like. Okay. Like, 
what the fuck? Yeah. Why? He's a competitor yeah, yeah. at that. Like he would, he was good that weekend. Even yeah. like he was, yeah. he was in it. Right. He says, Ronnie wants to talk to you. Okay. Yep. Um, all right. Well, send, 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 <laughs> send him in, in. I guess. <laughs> I guess yeah, I felt like, like the Godfather, you know, yeah, yeah. like bring him in. Um, so he comes back into the lounge. And so the four of us are sitting there, you know, and he's like, you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, yeah. but he's like, Hey, you, you know, I don't like you much, but <laughs> you're always cutting little Ezra off and blah, 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 blah. And all, all this sort of stuff. Uh-huh. He goes, but he says, but you cannot let Ricky Carmichael win this race tonight. <laughs> yeah. Cause Ricky and Yogi were feuding around this time. Right? Ricky wouldn't let him ride at his yeah. place anymore. Right. I'm like, yeah. uh, okay, well not my plan, but mm-hmm. you know, what are you getting at? So he starts to tell me, that after the finish line, everybody's going inside, you're going roll, and then like double, triple, or whatever. Yep. He says, little Ricky's going to go outside if you give him the chance. This is with a very southern Georgia yes. accent. Yes. He says he's going to go outside, and he's going to triple that first set. He goes, so if he's behind you, you have to block him and not let him do that. Okay. Because Ricky cannot win this race <laughs> it's like okay, okay Ronnie. yeah yeah great thanks <laughs> cool well i appreciate the heads up thanks for the advice yeah. um i will do my best <laughs> and then he leaves and then he leaves the bus right <laughs> he likes so dude. so random like yeah okay yeah so yeah. it's like what like you know, you got Dungy's dad walking into Villa Poto's rig, like talking to him before the main event. And you're like, what? This yeah. is crazy. Good stuff from Fro. <laughs> it's, oh, it's gold. It's good. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff Emig, for talking about that. That's great. And to explain that, the reason why is because Carmichael and Ezra, who we, we've talked to on a couple of these Liat re-raceables before, they were training and riding partners, and then they broke up, so to speak. So I'm guessing this is Ezra's dad saying, I do not want to see Ricky Carmichael winning races. Right. And, uh, yeah, mission accomplished. By the way, everybody, we've put out two Liat Re-Raceables with Yogi. I think he's the first repeat guy we've had. And we, the reviews are great. People really, really love Yogi coming back on the show. Well, we don't get a lot of Yogi in the media, so we've right. got to soak it up sometimes. And, and I, think, I, I thought it was awesome, and he's very candid. He's Yeah, NFG, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's not working for anybody right now, <laughs> right, so he can right. do whatever he wants. Yeah. So thanks to Liat, guys, and thanks to Max's Blenzol and Scott on board with this podcast as well. Weed, so we talked about the 80 race. Uh, that didn't go well. So after the 80 race, there is these new type of bikes. They had uh, valves in them and valve springs, and, and uh, they only fired on every other rotation uh, called four strokes. Yeah. On a supercross track? Yeah, yeah, on a supercross wow, track. Good luck with that. I know, right? That's not going to work. So uh, after a couple of years, they brought in a White Brothers four-stroke uh, shootout for the intermission. Uh, I think 01 was the first year of that. And uh, yeah, yeah, Weech, just another notch in my win belt. 01, Kelly Smith, Steve Mathis. Dominates the two nights, takes the overall win. U.S. Open four-stroke champion. Everybody, Mathis wow. Kelly Smith. Wow! The whole genesis of this story and why you're so interested in this race. Now I know because <laughs> yeah, you are exactly. part of the circle of honor, the ring of honor. The, yep, I'm waiting to be. Uh, you know, we were two-time East, East Coast four-stroke champions, right? And now we yep. added a U.S. Open of Supercross four-stroke championship to our mantle. What a 
to uh, along with a high point win, of course, on a, on a pesky two stroke. But we, what I remember most about that is so Damon Bradshaw came out of retirement for maybe oh, the gosh. fourth or fifth time at this point. White yeah, brothers, yeah. White brothers got Damon Bradshaw to come in. He had no fear gear. He was riding a Yamaha, and Bradshaw got second to Kelly, and Kelly passed him at one point oh. in one of the main events. And I was so torn. I was like, do I windmill Bradshaw on? Do I want Kelly? Like, this is awesome. And then Bradshaw was there, and it was amazing. You might have wanted him to beat your rider. Dude, it was Damon Bradshaw. Bradshaw. Right. And also, in practice, he got into it with Lance Smale, and and they were just yelling at each other in in the pits underneath the parking garage. Were you ever there in the pits underneath the parking garage? Remember all that? Yeah. Yes. And they were just cursing each other. And I'm like, yes, yes, Bradshaw (laughs) is back. Like, he is back. It was great. It was awesome. No one, for sure, no one is able to beat Bradshaw in the amount of yelling at someone helmet to helmet after practice. <laughs> no, no, nobody. I think he's the undisputed champion. Yeah, he's, yes. he's Tyson Fury of yelling at people right. after practice. So, um, yeah, it was really cool to see that. And Bradshaw got second and Kelly got first. And I was like, oh, my God, Bradshaw. We beat Damon Bradshaw. This is the coolest thing ever. So, yeah, it was great. And then Bradshaw would return. So then what they started doing, and the event – it was so exciting in the first couple of years, yeah. and it did lose the spectacle once it was around, say, six, seven years. Yep. And they were really trying to come up with gimmicks to make things different, to make things you know, not what you'd see at a regular round of Supercross. So one of them was the return of the legends. So I believe one year they had... Which, by the way, in theory, you know, in theory, <laughs> this was awesome. rad. Yeah. It wasn't bad. I mean, look, oh, this is okay. a Supercross track. It's scary. I feel like the guys all rode well. They didn't um, look like this is dangerous. Okay, so take people through this because I think there was two of them in two years, right? Yeah, so I think uh, the first one they had was the previous winners who are now retired, which was uh, LaRocco. Hoffman. Hoffman. And I don't think Emig. Did Emig race it? Yeah, I think Emig raced it. Emig did race it. Yeah. Okay, Emig did race it. Uh, and... Uh, in the end, someone kind of ruined it for me. I'm like, man, it's going to be really interesting. And they're like, no, you just always go with who retired last, who is the closest to being a pro. <laughs> and that's like LaRocco is only like 18 months out. Yep. And LaRocco just won, no problem. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, go ahead. But the second year, oh, let's bring it back to Damon Bradshaw. This was the good one. The chicken and the beast. Yep. And, of course, these guys had run into each other you know, so many times over the years. And they were trying to get this hype going. And, Weed, you were working this event for Feld, so I'm sure they were telling you, like, let's hype this thing. And, and dude, these guys did an okay job at selling it, but, it, yeah, it, it wasn't. Damon tried so hard. Damon, so we yeah. had, yeah, Bradshaw Matasevich. So we have this press conference to hype up Bradshaw against Matasevich. You know, there's all these legendary clips. Probably the greatest one ever is Bradshaw taking Matasevich into the wall. At Bercy, <laughs> please look for that on YouTube. If you have not watched that, but you haven't lived. Not life. on purpose. Da- I don't, it wasn't a, Damon's. Like he's he no. got out of shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, hands came off the bar in the whoops, because, and then his bike was aimed right at. Because honestly, if it was on purpose, that's involuntary manslaughter. What he did, <laughs> like if, it's, it's 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 not good. So no, uh, there are many others. Uh, Anaheim, nineteen ninety. There were a couple in one night. Yeah. So they have this video, this hype video. And Bradshaw, who I think at that point either was doing monster trucks or was close to it, mm-hmm. Bradshaw, he knows how to play the yep. hype game yep. now. So he comes in with stories about how much he hated Chicken and hyping up, well, maybe I'll get hit him again. Chicken has nothing, dude. Nothing. 
He doesn't remember any of it. I'm like, well, what's your side of that story? He's like, I don't even know if that happened. And I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. He remembers nothing. Right. And the some of the Feld people were so pumped on having this. They were. There like, was one guy in particular that was out of his mind stoked at this thing. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Anyway, they were so pumped on having Bradshaw and Matasovich back that I remember one saying, no, man, Matasovich is just so angry that the anger, the words, he can't even get the words out, man. That's all it is. He's just so seething looking at Bradshaw that he can't even put the words it's together. the dumbest theory in my, I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, I do remember our our buddy Denny Hartwig, who was the, the press, press man for Supercross at the time. Yeah. He... Might have referred to one rider as Damon and the other one as the burnout. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's uh, how he was referring to the two riders. So they really tried to hype it up. Yeah, yeah. I think Brad Shaven slowed down to let himself. He get did. Past. He did. Uh, he Damon was a Damon practiced a lot, took it seriously in in clear Damon Bradshaw style. He did not want to uh, lose, and uh, yeah. Chicken probably didn't really. Chicken rides a lot. I guarantee you, Chicken rode more than Damon Bradshaw in the previous yeah. five years. You know, tenfold. But I don't think Chicken's yep. program is super intense. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I remember at Glenn, I was at Glen Helen with Chicken, uh, I don't know, six months ago. He rolls in around 9, and I see him roll out like 10.30. Like just that was it. The track started Perfect. getting too rough. So, um, Perfect. Yeah, Ch- d- this one didn't work. Bradshaw whooped him, and Damon tried to make it even a race, and Chicken wanted no part of it and just yeah. wanted to ride around. So it yeah. did, did not work. Uh, but but, but again, I think in theory, this was a really cool idea. This was a neat, I was stoked, you know, but then it was like watching a practice. You're like, well, these guys aren't even close. So yeah, we got a problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. LaRocco, like Huffman and Emig rode well, but LaRocco was just way better. Yeah. So it wasn't a battle. Uh, yeah. the, another, another year they had a mechanics, uh, intermission, a mechanics challenge. Basically, I think it was a take a rear wheel off and, um, and put a new one on, you know, already the tire mounted and everything. Just change a tire, change a wheel. Who could change a wheel yep. fastest? Or maybe it was front and rear, whatever it was, which yep. is cool, neat to do. You know what I mean? You had the riders out there cheering their mechanics on and, and everything else. Except, of course, because we can't do anything uh, in this world without, you know, uh, um, uh, trying to get an edge. Taking it too seriously. Taking it too seriously, yeah. yes. Uh, the KTM guys had quick release things welded on an axle and, you know, they had things loose and, and they didn't, you know, and, and so it was controversy after this. Ah, it's just like, come on, everybody. Come on. Yeah. Was it, uh, I feel like Carlos Rivera won once, but I, that would have been pre, um, KTM days with Dunge. So I don't remember exactly what year that was, yeah. but I feel like Carlos won it before. I I, th- yeah. I think I agree with you, but it was. I remember everyone was upset. It didn't work. There were guys putting yeah handles on their axles and running different things. It's just like, come on, man. We're just trying to just trying to like have a little contest here, guys. <laughs> you know, but nope, couldn't do it. Now the final gimmick, and this one was pretty exciting. So I remember th- I, in your story. I don't think anyone could tell you how much money it was. I'm almost positive. It was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, all right. I, I had did. I had numbers all over the map. Yeah. Okay. So the hundred grand thing was exciting for a while, and started the the luster was starting to wear off on that. So we had the trifecta, which I believe was Rockstar Energy at the time put up the money for it. Two hundred and fifty grand if you could win both nights, and be fastest in qualifying, and get both hole shots. And for sure, if you're putting betting odds on it, right? It's like. No one's going to get both hole shots, dude. It's too random. Yeah. 
So Chad Reed dominates first night, wins qualifying. Uh, they did qualifying as a super pole. Each rider out there on the track by themselves with the stopwatch. And I remember, Steve, I don't know if you noticed this, the dudes were making mistakes. It put like such a high level of pressure on did them it? riding in the arena yeah, alone. Yeah. 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 Um, they would, uh, we watch practice every week at these races. They're pretty much just doing lap after lap after lap. No problem. Mm -hmm. In a normal week. Uh, but this one, when they had to go by themselves in the arena, hardly anyone was able to do a lap without clunking something. <laughs> I think because of the pressure. Yep. So Chad's fastest, wins, gets the whole shot, wins the first night. Fastest of qualifying the second night. And it's like, okay, if Chad gets this whole shot in the main, he's clearly going to win the main. And by that, he'll have won everything and he'll get 250 grand. Mm -hmm. If he just gets first overall... He's only going to get 100 and, grand. And let's face it, if he gets the whole shot, he will win the main. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. what he needs to get. Yeah. Right. So you're looking at the difference between him getting 100 grand for winning the overall or 250 grand for sweeping everything. That is the difference between him getting a whole shot or not getting a whole shot. It's a $150,000 difference yeah. for him to get the whole shot. <laughs> so he gets a bad jump and just says, screw it. I'm not lifting. Yep. I'm going to take everybody out in turn one, and maybe I'll get the whole shot anyway. Yep. Like, I don't even care about the 100. I'm rolling the – because I'm going to go down, right? I'm going to go down <clears throat> yes. probably or maybe pull the whole shot, and I don't even care about the 100. I just have to go for this 250. Yeah. Yes. So it ends up shoving five riders under the bleachers. Yes. They get pushed so far. <laughs> Poor Timmy. Poor Timmy is under the bleachers, out of sight for I feel like five minutes. And, and I props to you because I was almost done with the story, and you're like, "Hey, why don't you throw in that that two fifty? Oh, so and good. I was like, "Oh shit!" Like I'd forgotten it, right? Yeah, so so Timmy said he's coming in, and he's got the start. He thinks he's looking good, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, he gets cleaned out, sent sliding onto the concrete underneath bleachers, underneath the arena, and and, and everybody's down. And, and then yes. and then Timmy's pissed. He's just furious. And Chad's like, "Oh, sorry, man. I'm just going for 250. Like I don't know what to tell you, Chad. No, no apologies at all. Like no, no, no. 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 Yeah. He said if he was in the position, I, I would expect him to do the same. And if he didn't, I would have made fun of him. Right, exactly. And so they <laughs> got into it after the race. It's in the story. Timmy throws a glove at Chad. Uh, that was great. Yes. I watched all that. But it, <laughs> yeah. it also that the whole thing by Chad allows a young Jake Weimer on a 250 because now they were racing. Yes. 250s and 450s together. They didn't care. They go ahead and race it. Jake Weimer won a night. Uh, and at this point, Weege, nobody really knew much about Weimer. No, and that was the hallmark of this event that Emig and Huffman really stamped those first two years that anything could happen in one night. So, yeah, somewhere along the way, they said we're going to have one class, 250s and 450s together. So you'll get like a young Dunge. Oh, how would Dunge fare against mm -hmm. Reed and Stu? Well, we're going to give that to you. And I do remember in those early days, everyone – and these are never people that actually ride, saying, hey, man, I think on this kind of track, 250 might actually be better. Well, that didn't pan out yeah, at all. Yeah, except, uh, except when Chad takes out all the top 450 guys. Right. It, yes, it did work in this circumstance where every 450 rider was under the bleachers. Uh, Josh DeMuth. Good for Weimer, oh, and then I forgot yep. this. Josh Demuth? Josh Demuth was he like won the overall? two laps away from winning $100,000. He was, he was a, a RCH. It wasn't RCH, it was his heart in Huntington. They had picked him up for yeah. just this race this weekend. Of course, he was a multi-time arena cross champion, and they yep. gave him a ride, and it was carnage everywhere, and Langston, yeah, it was this year. It was the year the Chad did it. Yeah. Langston uh, got the overall with a pass with like two laps to go on Michael Byrne 
Otherwise, uh, Josh Demuth was your $100,000 winner, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Langston, every one of those top 450 guys were all getting up from under the bleachers. And Langston did the best job. He probably had the least bad crash. Yeah. Still bad. Yeah. But he got further forward than any of the guys who had done well the previous night. And Langston won the overall. And this was during this unbelievable run of luck from my guy GL where he wins the 450 National Motocross Championship, wins 100 grand here at the U.S. Open, and then famously, right, goes and gambles with yeah. the hundred grand, and then like makes eighty seven thousand dollars more or something yep. like yeah, that. something like that. that. Night. Yep, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good weekend for Grant Langston. Uh, solid, solid. Hey, yeah. that's my man, GL. When it's good, it's good, and when it's bad, it's not so good. <laughs> Always riding the roller coaster. Um, but yeah, that that story is in there from from Chad's perspective, from Weimer's perspective, and from Timmy's perspective. Um, so that what blows my mind about Timmy? Yep. Right. He gets taken out in the first turn. He gets up. He rides all the laps. He does ride all the laps, Timmy. But the rage is still inside his mm-hmm. body the whole 15 minutes or whatever this main event. Yeah. And the moment the event ends, he rides right up to Chad just as angry. Yep. Just as So bad. the fact that he's clicking off laps, doing jumps, <laughs> going through whoops, but maintaining that anger <laughs> always impressed me. Yeah, exactly. So they got into it after the race. That was great. Um, and as you know firsthand, the Timmy Chad <laughs> relationship. Had been through so many ups and downs. They, there's been a lot of yeah. There's been a lot of uh, ups and downs with those two guys. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, talking to Chad years later, he's just like, yeah, yeah. I took him out, but I was trying to, you know, I tried. I had to win. I had to get the whole, shot. Get the whole shot. And Chad, like, just no, yeah. no apologies at all, right? So, um, that's great. Now, you did the webcast as like you said from '05 on um, with the great Jim Hawley. Do you have? Yeah. Were, were you? Were you guys grabbing guests and stuff from VIP areas? Was it? Do you remember any uh, funny announcing moments with Jim or guests or anything else from this race? Uh, one thing I remember is one year, for some reason, uh, our guy Rick Johnson, the legend, all-time hero, he was just around when we st- when the show started, like the first heat race. Okay. So he just ends up with a headset, and then the three of us just end up announcing, and I'm like, the oh, whole night, hey, the Rick- whole night. For not the whole night, okay. but for a lot, yeah, yeah, like yeah, half. yeah, right. RJ's with us for maybe an hour, hour and a half, and I'm like, hey, that's cool. RJ yeah. and Jim Holly, what's not to love? And I do remember our buddy JT actually whole shot one of the heat races, and he gets passed by a couple guys. And RJ was real big on talking about riding technique and things like that. So I'm like, RJ, when you see Jason Thomas and these other guys getting by, what are you seeing that they're doing that he's not doing? And RJ basically is like, yeah, he's too short. There's nothing he can do. No. He's just too short. He's just too short. He's, He's just too short. And I occasionally I'll text that to JT to tease him, and he just says, it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, RJ's with us for a long time. Yep. And then eventually he's like, hey, man, I'm working with some guys tonight. I got to go to the pits. Yep. And we're like, oh, oh, well, by all means, yeah, you can go. Yeah, yeah. So he goes, and then no one was ever able to figure out RJ, me, Jim Holly. Linda, our producer, our sound man, Alan. No one ever knew how or why RJ ended up. It was like it was all accident. <laughs> That's he, awesome. He didn't want to ditch us because he thought we wanted him. Yep. We felt bad because apparently he was there to coach riders, and he's not talking to them because he's doing our show. <laughs> no one knows how this happened and why RJ was announcing with us instead of doing his job in the pits. Yeah. It's hilarious. Oh, that's great. And, yeah. and Jim Jim in Vegas, uh, That was uh, how was that? Oh, uh Keep your distance. Yeah, yeah. Keep okay. your distance. When I got the webcast job, I was told, don't ever hang out with Jim in Vegas and don't ever end up in Mexico with Jim Holly. <laughs> Vegas I mean, and Mexico, stay out of it. 
I feel like those are still life lessons. Those are still positive life lessons, right? If you're in San Diego and Jim says, get in the car, we're going to Mexico, don't go. Right. Yeah, don't Don't go. (laughs) Yes. Uh, One year, they this race was sporadically on TV here and there. It wasn't part of the regular Mm -hmm. package. So one night, Glenn Selig, who is still the television producer of Arena Cross to this day, and he was the producer of Arena Cross then, he was in charge of the TV show, and he just comes up to us at the end of the night and is like, hey, bring your headsets over to the other side of the building. We need your help. So we literally just take our webcast headsets mm-hmm. and plug it into a soundboard, and they play us the race back, and we are the TV announcers. Really? For the night. <laughs> wow. It was very informal because I think like you've dealt with at the Nationals, we're not going to pay you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just, you're just helping out. We don't want to officially make anything real because then you might ask for pay. Right. I, I, so, uh, I yeah, think it's I think funny. It was 08, maybe something like that. I think it's funny that you guys, like, you guys did the webcast with Jim and you had a producer, right? It was Linda, then it was somebody else after she left, and yep. you had a sound yep. guy with a rack of equipment. And, oh, yeah. and then, and then I look at myself and, like, we just showed up at the Arena Cross finals, me, you, and JT, with some drinks in our hands, and we did a webcast. <laughs> just like it was like the biggest deal when Feld was doing it, when you guys were doing it. And then now it's just like, yeah, we're, I, I'm going to do a webcast at the Arena Cross. Okay, cool. Here's your little yeah. Zoom Te- and technology has yeah, changed. It, totally right. Technology has totally. changed. Totally. So yep. But it was super fun, and uh, you know the the hardest thing about this event, I bet you, for anyone working it in any capacity, rider, myself, an announcer, you a mechanic, look, dude. You had to survive Friday night in Vegas <laughs> and get back there on Saturday. Yeah. And that was tough. I remember a few U.S. Opens where I never saw daylight. Just never saw yeah. daylight. Just went yeah. from hotel to arena to pits to back to arena. Just never, never saw daylight. Um, hey, uh, a couple things before we wrap it up here on the Lee at Reraceables. Uh, by the end, Weege, I had, as I mentioned to Eric, like I had some friends from Canada come down. A, 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 a buddy of mine and his wife came down, and we hung out with my wife and – the arena was half full, if it was even half full by the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not no longer the draw, no longer the ticket. The four fifty four strokes had kind of made racing a little boring. And I mean, as much as we're celebrating this event, as it should be, by the end, it it was time, man. It really was. Yeah, yeah. There's if if anyone's like, well, what happened? Why did it go away? That was the most natural causes ever. It yep. just wasn't exciting anymore, and people weren't going. And look, I, the same thing happens with the Monster Cup, right? It's always awesome to have an off-season race when you're in the business like we are. Something to watch, something to talk about, something to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> the hype level for these off-season events is always 50-50. It's 50%. Uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves and say this is awesome because it's not a points-paying race. Not everybody's there. you know. So, yeah, that's eventually what happened. It mm-hmm. just wasn't that exciting anymore. And then I almost feel like when it trips, where someone starts to say, ah, that event's not cool anymore, doesn't it seem to like snowball from there? Yeah, maybe, maybe, right? Yeah, because I think it does. Yeah, it definitely. But yeah, it just, it just. I don't know what it is. I, I, I thought it was a little bit of the bikes, but I don't know. Maybe not. Um, we had some. I know that people bring up the bikes, but there was a year, Carmichael and Stu battled down to the last lap on four fifties. I'm like, what more? The two biggest names in the sport battling in the last lap. Right, what more can right. you ask for? Yeah, yeah, maybe. But it maybe. still didn't seem just, exciting. I remember being so bored in the stands. I was in the stands with the, uh, my buddy and his wife and my wife, and we yeah. were ju- I was so bored. I yeah. don't know. I remember thinking to myself, this is not exciting. So, uh, But you know what? As I said to Eric, like I don't think the Monster Cup has worked. I don't know. I don't feel like that's a home run. 
I feel like that thing should be closer to Anaheim um, to really get some testing in and really see new colors and really see all the riders. And, you know, if you make it a month before Anaheim won, you can really shake everything down. Um, but, uh, you know, that event – and, by the way, it's been shelved. Uh, COVID uh, shelved it the first year, and then it's never come back. It was supposed to move to L.A. Um, it's still not back. I don't know if it will be back. But I'm not so sure that thing ever really worked great either, to be honest. Yeah, it's the the problem with all off-season events. You don't get all of the riders. You don't know if they're all trying, if they're all truly coming in prepared. And I think that's fine, except I feel like once – that word gets out. Once one person rolls their eyes and says, ah, this event doesn't really mean anything, it becomes the cool thing to also be like, oh, yeah, I feel that way too, man. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I don't think it's cool either. If you don't think it's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's cool, right, yeah. Um, well, look, the Monster Cup, they paid a freaking million dollars, and they did it the very first year. And you remember, epically, it was just being panned by Reed and Stu, who weren't there, as, well, five hundred grand goes to taxes. Yeah, yeah, and I think RV kind of trashed yeah. the million dollars. He did. Also, he did while yeah, winning it's, it. It's an annuity. It's an annuity. I don't. I'm not getting all the money or something. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't help. Right. And it, while it is true that if you take the million dollars, fifty percent goes to taxes, that is also true with any other large jackpot <laughs> you win. Like the guy that just made a million and a half on Jeopardy. That's not the race's fault. In in my home country of Canada, lottery winnings are not taxed, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go figure. Who's paying um, for your medicine then? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, aside from that, um, yeah, it, 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 you're right. You're right. All of that is true. And uh, It's not Feld's fault that no, the government yeah, takes taxes not. from yeah, any large know, penalty right? you'd make any possible way. <laughs> Let's blame Feld for that. Uh, um, hey, well, no- I feel like they did. They uh, did their part. They gave somebody a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. We normally have categories in Elite Re-Raceables, but we're covering a number of years for the U.S. Open here. And so we can – but we can do um, – the Jacob Marsak Award for a rider who did the best without you really remembering is Josh Steenluth, who was three, four laps away from winning $100,000. Good job for that. Uh, yes. And I'm who- going to bring up one other. Yep. i bring up one other. There was one man who put himself on the map at this race. Now, at this time – He was a supercross rider that was more known as someone who had come through the world of arena cross, Steve. And before the race, he spoke to the media. This man is excellent with speaking to the media. You and I might communicate with him daily. Mm -hmm. Staying, how arena cross would help him in this event. I believe it was on an MDK KTM. (laughs) And he came out and got on the podium overall in this event on a 450. And I don't even know if he'd had a 250 supercross podium at this time. I don't remember This young man's name. It's on the number 114. Yeah. Justin Brayton podium this race overall, and I talked to him a lot all weekend. I'm like, this is a sharp guy. This is a cool guy. I, I you, like this You Brayton like this guy. guy. Yeah, this guy's going to go places. He's going to go and, places. And, this 114. And, and you know what? In honor of Scott Goggles coming on the podcast, on this podcast, too, that 114 works as well. The 114 guy. Yeah, yeah the yes. 114 guy works. Um, I don't remember that. Oh, so he did. Good job for JB. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was nice. like yeah. Stu Millsaps and JB yeah, yeah. when like no one had even no. heard of JB. JB with the perm. Oh, it was yeah, big. Yeah, big. Uh, so okay, so Jacob Marksack Award goes to Josh Demuth and uh, and JB. Uh, where's JT? Well, he's there a lot, and he breaks his lower leg this race too. Matt Bonney takes him out. Uh, yeah. Yes, I remember that because yep. our announcing tower. One of the cool things we mentioned with Eric was that you're really on top of. If you ever see Fenway Park in, in Boston where they have that giant, the green monster, that giant wall? 
Yeah. To me, that's the way this event is situated. It's like you're on top of this wall looking straight down at the track. Yeah. So that, awesome. that category of work, who really won the race? Well, let's go Jake Weimer because you probably don't remember that he won a, a, a night beating all of the superstars of the sport. Jake Weimer on a 250. Okay. Good job. Okay. Yeah, we'll give it to Jake Weimer. So. All right. What I was going to say about the wall was I just remember oh. JT breaking his leg. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the asterisk people come over, and he just waves him off. And it's like, you could tell he already knew his leg was broken, and he just sat down on a tough block, and he just chilled there. And the rest of the heat and, race, all the laps are going by, and I'm just watching, and I'm like, the dude is just sitting on a tough block with a broken leg. Like, ah, I'll wait till the race is over. And, I'm good. and also, uh, his roommate that weekend was A1 Matt Bonney. And he said that Matt Bonney oh. never, never apologized to him or said anything. <laughs> so, <Wow>. awkward. <laughs> awkward. Sorry about your leg. What happened to your leg, bro? Yeah, yeah exactly. What? You broke your leg? <laughs> Dude, that's oh, terrible. Good stuff. Uh, all right, everybody. Well, please check out the entire edition on the Richard X Digital Magazine for the U.S. Open, the, the history of the U.S. Open of Supercross. Thank you for people who read it. Thank you to people who contributed to it. Uh, and thanks for listening to this podcast. Liet, Maxis, Blenzel, and the folks at Scott. Uh, good times, U.S. Open. Thanks, Weege. Appreciate it. See ya.